Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Smith. Hi, everybody. Welcome. It's good to be with you. Um, I know we pray, but I want to just pray one more time. Let's ask the Blessed Virgin's uh, presence with us tonight to guide us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Paul the Great. Pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Been waiting to say that for a long time. All right, it's great to be with you. Um, as you heard, I, um, this is my first time actually at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and I am honestly really floored by just the presence and the kindness and everything here. Um, last week I spent um, with a number of other Catholic professors uh, doing some renewal of myself uh, at a small college in New Hampshire called Thomas More. Anybody heard of St. Thomas More? Nice little college there. And one of the guys who was there, a colleague of mine, his name is um, Ryan Topping, and he wrote a book called Renewing Catholic Culture. And when I see movements like this, I think that's what it looks like. I mean, he talks about architecture and music and liturgy and all these other things. But truly, what you guys are doing here is really very inspiring. Uh, you, you need to know, too, that there are movements like this happening all over the United States. There's the Catholic Biblical School on the, um, out in Colorado. There's another one in Michigan. And I travel all over, and I'm seeing movements just like the ICC. And so be encouraged that what you're doing, while good and local and penetrating, is happening on a larger scale, too. And so we just need to keep it up. You should have an outline in front of you tonight. Um, that's at least for the first half, just to get us going, and then there'll be another. No. Uh, the outline that you have is actually for all three weeks. Thank goodness, right? And so next time when you come in, you don't have to pick up another outline. We'll just pick up wherever we uh, left off. Uh, so Deacon Sabatino asked me if I'd be interested in doing a series on the Apostle Paul, and specifically on Ephesians. And for me, that was a no-brainer. The Apostle Paul... Um, is one of my favorite uh, authors of the New Testament. Of course, he's written over half of it, so it's hard not to like him. Um, but um, the book of Ephesians is really a tremendous book. And if you've never studied it or if you've done it before, I really think you're going to get a lot out of our look. So let's dive right in. This series is called The Armor of God, which is, of course, a reference to Ephesians 5. But there's lots of other things that we're going to get to before we get to that great chapter. St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. Now, what I want to do in this series is try to give you an overview of the book and of Paul's theology. We're also going to go through the book chapter by chapter. But tonight, what I thought would be helpful is to really hold back a little bit on diving too deeply into the letter itself and start with the basics. Who is the Apostle Paul and what is he up to in this letter? So by way of an introduction, I want to introduce the question, who is the Apostle Paul? Then we'll talk a little bit about what Ephesians is and what's going on in that city. And then, Lord willing, we'll get into chapter 1. 
And then in the subsequent weeks, we'll pick up and move some at greater steam, and we'll make our way all the way through the letter, okay? Okay, so on the outline, you can see the first major point is approaching St. Paul today. Who was he? He goes by different names, certainly the Apostle Paul, right? But we know that in Scripture, as we read his story, he is not Paul, but Saul. And it, it, I want to go right into some Scripture here and look at what he says about himself. Because there are a lot of people that have written, you know, filled libraries with descriptions of who St. Paul is, but why not go to the source, right, of divine scripture and see what he and other authors say about him. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, he writes, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, that was Paul's own tribe. Remember that from the Old Testament, we've got 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, which give us the tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. Paul is of the tribe of Benjamin. And he tells us, just like our Lord, he was circumcised on the eighth day. And then he adds, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, little nomenclature, Hebrew is um, the language that the people spoke. But sometimes um, what happens is it becomes a sort of a shorthand for talking about the Jewish way of life, right? So those who speak Hebrew, but more than that, he's saying, I'm one of the chosen people, right? In many different ways he says it. Paul was a fearlessly faithful first century Jew. And you say, well, what does that mean? Weren't all people fearlessly faithful? Well, yes and no. Uh, there were various challenges to Judaism in the first century. And one of the things that's going on beneath the New Testament is what I would call a sense of cultural assimilation. Meaning that there were many Jewish people who remained faithful. There were others to varying degrees that were challenged to assimilate into their culture. Um, in the time of Jesus and Paul, Jerusalem was in some ways a cosmopolitan city in the sense that you would hear um, Greek being spoken. There was many people from Hellenistic backgrounds. There was certainly a large Roman presence. And then if you go beyond Jerusalem and talk about the Jewish communities in what's known as the diaspora, those various settings around the Mediterranean world, you've got various Jewish colonies, many who were very loyally gathered together in synagogues, but then others who were in some ways being enticed either by power, by wealth, by other forces to in some ways let their guard down and, and begin to capitulate to the larger culture. It's a good thing we don't have those problems today, right? You know, if you're Catholic, you just... All right. But what I think Paul is, 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 is uh, known for, even as, he, uh, as a Pharisee early on, is his zealousness. And that's what I want to stress in my opening point here. His was a robust monotheistic faith. This is point three. In the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who revealed himself to his covenant people, Israel. And I want to really explore this idea with you tonight. What happened to St. Paul at his conversion? Did he go from Jew to Christian? Is it as simple as that? And that's a question that I want to kind of leave hanging for the time being, but we'll come back to it. So, it was to Yahweh and Yahweh alone that Paul devoted all of his prayer, his energy, really his entire being. His love for God undergirded a love for the things of God, especially Torah, temple, and tradition. Another way of saying that is, out of Paul's own robust love for God, it wasn't something that was merely spiritual, it was moral, it was ethical, it permeated all of his life. And so, going to the temple... Uh, was something that he, he did on a regular basis. 
Um, whenever Paul would travel, right, we, you know he would go into a new city. What does the book of Acts say? He would go to the synagogue. Immediately he would find the synagogue because there you have the, basically the first audience of Paul. Now that sounds strange because we tend to think of him as the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And he is. But it's not that he's apostle to the Gentiles and not to the Jews. In fact, I'm here to argue tonight that it's a both and rather than an either or. Paul sees this great mystery, and that's what we're going to talk about in this letter, of how God has set aside a chosen people, Israel, to be his own, but then somehow in his mystery, at the chosen time, he has expanded that through Jesus Christ to all of the world. And once Paul understands that, everything in his worldview changes, and he begins to preach relentlessly to both Jews and Gentiles. Later, as a Christian, point number five, his robust prayer life was redirected towards God in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. The point I'm going to make here right at the beginning is that when you're studying Paul, you're studying a man who is absorbed by the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Fervent prayer was at the heart of Paul's message, as is seen at the close of our book. If you have your Bible, please open it to uh, the end of the book of Ephesians. Um, and it's Ephesians 6, verse 18 through 20. And here's what he says. Ephesians 6, verse 20. If you don't have a Bible, just look on with the evangelical Christian next to you. It's the only Bible joke I know, so you've got to help me out here. All right. All right. Um, it's actually so good to see so many Catholics with their Bibles and reading them, truly. All right. Pray at all times in the Spirit, that utterance may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Very important word. We want to take a little note in the side margin. Mousterion in the Greek. M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And it means so much for Paul and for Ephesians. The mousterion, the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now we'll come back to um, this next point in just a little bit. But one of the things that distinguishes Ephesians is that it's known as one of the captivity or prison letters. And we'll talk about what that means later. So this is probably a reference to Paul being in captivity. But there's another sense in which uh, it, it might have to do just with the fact that he's always under a kind of antagonism, whether he's actually in change literally or not. Okay, so clearly the first major point is that Paul is a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? Um, but he's also very much influenced by other cultural forces. And two of the most prominent cultural influences upon the Apostle Paul are um, Hellenism and Roman culture. So let's talk just a little about that. Paul was born and raised in a city known as Tarsus um, in 8 AD. And it was an important city in the Roman province in Southeast Asia Minor. We'll talk more about um, the city that uh, he's directing the letter to, Ephesus, but let's just stay for a moment with his upbringing in Tarsus. Uh, prior to its Roman rule, Tarsus was a self-governing Greek state, which is to say that it had all things going forward in terms of being a center of Greek culture and influence. Um, on the next page, the influence of Hellenistic or Greek education and civilization made the city of Tarsus uh, truly a center of Greek uh, culture. 
Paul himself received a thoroughly classical Greek education. You can see it in many ways, and I think most biblical scholars agree about that. When you look at his letters and you see his very high-skilled level of rhetoric, for example, it's not something that he merely picked up in Pharisaical school. He was well-trained by the Greeks as well. Um, as such, he was immersed in a Hellenistic and Roman culture, as well as politics, religion, philosophy. All these things were around him really from his birth. Now, this next point is also important. Yet, to be immersed in such Greek culture is not to say at all that he embraced it. And the reason I make that point is, um, well, when I was doing my PhD at Loyola, uh, it was very much in vogue to talk about the Hellenistic influence on the Gospels, right? And to a point there, you could say, yeah, you can make a case that there is Hellenistic influence certainly on Paul and on the Gospels. But what we've seen, thankfully, over the last 30, 40, 50 years is what I would call a recovery of the Judaism of the New Testament. Are you with me? Um, and that's very important because a lot of uh, historical, critical, and sometimes skeptical-minded scholars have, be, have looked at the Gospels for a couple of centuries uh, as really prominently influenced by Greek culture, Greek religion, and so on. And at the extreme end, what you see are those who basically say that the Gospels basically just adapted the Hellenistic myths. Okay? And I'm here, obviously, to, to go against that grain very strongly. And the same with the Apostle Paul. So it's kind of like a, on the one hand and on the other hand. On the one hand, I'm saying, yes, there's no doubt Paul was influenced by all this stuff. He didn't live in a bubble. He was well aware of it. He knew Greek. He spoke Greek. He knew the language. He knew the philosophers, right? But on the other hand, I, I want to really come back to the point that above all, Paul was a Jew, right? His loyalty was to Jerusalem, not to Athens, as it were, right? Now, let's talk a little bit about his, the, the Roman background here. Uh, he was likewise immersed in Roman culture. He enjoyed Roman citizenship. And a number of epistles involve Roman-style rhetoric. And in fact, Peter Williamson, who wrote a very nice commentary on Ephesians, talks about how there's rhetorical influence in this letter that we're going to study. When we uh, come back next week, I'll introduce you to it more, a little bit more. Um, numerous Pauline expressions were politically saturated. Let me give you one of my favorite examples. Um, here it is, but if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, with all due respect to our evangelical brothers and sisters, this is the kind of uh, thing that you see you know, on a bumper sticker, or maybe if you've been, ever been in an encounter with someone who was you know, trying to share the faith with you, right? Um, it will sometimes use that expression, or even some of these little verses in St. Paul. Um, first of all, the first thing I would clear up about that passage is when Paul says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's in Romans 9, uh, 10, 9 and 10, by the way. He's not saying how you get saved. He's not giving you a formula of how to get saved. Some of the TV preachers would tell us otherwise. Basically, they'd pull that out and say, well, if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, you basically you know, get on your knees and say their sinner's prayer, and that's sort of what this verse looks like. The reality is, we need to study Scripture in context. And I, I hope that if you've never done so, um, some of you um, may take a look at my book. I wrote a book on trying to help us understand uh, how to approach Scripture in a, in a Catholic way and in a balanced way. There's other good resources around as well. But m make sure that you get some guidance. Maybe you've already got a, a good sense of it from being in these seminars here. 
But what I mean by context is what happens a lot today is someone will open the Bible to a passage like this and rip it out of its context. And it seems to say that basically all you need to do is confess Jesus on your lips and you're saved. But, and we're not going to do this, but if we were to go through Romans 10, where that verse is found, what you would find is that what Paul is saying is, you can be a Jew and come to Christ, and you can be a Greek and come to Christ. That all who, are, all who profess him are in Christ. Those who are baptized and get on into the church and, and practice holiness and so on. So he's not telling you how to get saved. He's basically saying who can be saved, which is basically everybody. Okay? So that's the first thing to clear up about that passage. The second thing is that when you hear the phrase, uh, Jesus is Lord, it sounds, again, very, very religious, right? And yet, at the same time, I would argue that in this passage, Paul is actually being somewhat political. Here's what I mean. Uh, Jesus Kyrios, that's what it is in the Greek. Again, sounds very religious. But for Paul, it was countercultural, Fighting words, as I would call it. Throughout the Roman Empire, all those who said, Kaiserus Curius, that is to say, Caesar is Lord, swore their allegiance to Caesar and his power. So the word Curius, which we attach to our Lord and to Christianity, is really a word that comes out of Roman culture. Right? If you even watch heck, you know, shows like Downton Abbey, which my wife got me watching, right? Watch shows like that, and you get into some of the um, early 20th century or earlier English, the Nevictorian English, you hear the title, My Lord, all the time, right? It's a title of reverence. Well, if you trace that all the way back to Greco-Roman culture, you see that in the Roman Empire, this was a word that belonged first and foremost to Caesar. Okay, so what is Paul doing when he says, Jesus Curias? What he's doing is saying, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That's what he's saying. So yes, it has theological implications, but it has political implications. What he, and what that means is to say that Jesus is Lord means our allegiance is to him. Right? It's not to a politician. It, and it's also not to a worldly kingdom. Right? Remember when Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world? It's says the same mindset as St. Paul when he says, Jesus is Lord. Um, listen to what N.T. Wright says. When Paul said, Jesus is Lord, his hearers must have known at once that this meant, so Caesar is not. And that it was the good news, the evangelion, that Paul announced around the world. Was that a subversion of the symbolic world of the Roman Empire? N.T. Wright says, how could it not be? And so my point is simply that, yes, it's a religious message, but it's also a message that in many ways is strikingly political. And I would say when you read um, all of Paul's letters, be mindful that what you first read may have a deeper meaning that may need to be unpacked. And that's where we need one another. We need good teachers. We need good Catholic commentaries to help break it open, right? But there's always a deeper mystery that awaits us in Scripture. Finally, let's end with this in terms of Paul's background. Paul was a Pharisee. Let's not forget that. Um, in Philippians 3, once again, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as he's rolling out his credentials to uh, the church there, basically telling them who he was, right? He's not just a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul's love for the law, or Torah, and faithful adherence to the law guided him to become a leading Pharisee. I am a Jew, he writes, born at Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in this city, that is to say Jerusalem, at the feet of a uh, Pharisee whose name was Gamaliel. 
educated according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you are all this very day. That's from the book of Acts chapter 22. And so Paul is basically professing that he is a Pharisee. Um, the word in Hebrew, parushim, meant a separated one. The, the Pharisees, um, look, the, the Pharisees are uh, often depicted in all these movies that we've seen, you know, uh, over the last 30, 40 years as the big bad guys, right? And so, you know, whenever you see a movie, it's like the music comes on, dun, 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 and the Pharisees come in, right? I, I'm here to recover a little bit of... Uh, integrity of the Pharisees. They weren't strictly all bad guys. First of all, Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus was a Pharisee himself. And so there, there are people who are part of these more elite groups that became Christians and followers, and, and Paul was as well. Second thing I'd say about the Pharisees is, yes, we tend to think of them as basically hypocrites, um, but that's kind of painting with a pretty broad brush. At their very best, they were those who loved God with a, with a, with a deep and wide love. Um, where Jesus has uh, difficulties with them, he certainly doesn't mince words, right? But I would actually say that they're a lot closer, almost brothers in some ways. Uh, for one thing, the Pharisees had a more, um, a, a broader view of Scripture than did other groups of Jesus' day. For example, the Sadducees, which I'm sure you've heard of, um, they got into conflicts with Jesus and later with Paul because they only accepted the five books of Moses, I kind of consider them the religious fundamentalists of their day, the Sadducees. On the other hand, the Pharisees and Jesus and Paul had a broader view of approximately 22 books of the canon. So the law, but also the, the, um, the prophets, right, and the other writings, okay? And what that meant was that they, they, they were not limited to seeing God's word to the Pentateuch alone. And what that meant is when you got into Isaiah and all these other books and the Psalms, you began to see the larger vision of God unfolded beyond the Pentateuch. And so Paul was someone who loved the law and uh, was taught under this, um, this Pharisee whose name was Gamaliel. Now, who was he? Well, Gamaliel was one of the uh, most renowned Pharisees of his time. Um, the other major one, whose name was Shemai, I won't introduce you to, but Gamaliel was a philosopher who was distinguished himself by being opposed to violence towards uh, various heretics. Now, what I mean is, the Pharisees were very strict. They had sort of an insider-outsider mentality. Either you're with us or you're against us. And so there are various groups that they went after and uh, kind of fought with, right, philosophically. Um, and one of those groups in the first century were the way, in other words, the Christians. And Gamaliel was one who was opposed to uh, pushing down these groups, such as the Christians, by means of violence. And so the question becomes, did Paul follow in the footsteps of his, of his mentor in that way? Was he a pacifist? Was Paul a pacifist? No. The answer is absolutely no, right? Um, like his mentor, he was a brilliant scholar of the law, but unlike Gamaliel, he held a fervent take-no-prisoners approach to Judaism and persecuted heretical Jews, including many Christians. Uh, listen to what he says about it himself in uh, Galatians chapter 1. This is on uh, page 3, 4a. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people 
so extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. And again, N.T. Wright underscores this and says, Saul may have learned a lot from Gamaliel, but he did not share his particular position. Yeah, that's an understatement, because look at what happens to Stephen, right, in, in the book of Acts. Stephen, uh, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, was stoned with, under the authority of Saul the Pharisee. So Saul stood on and said, yes, do this, get rid of these kinds of people, they're rabble-rousers, right? Gamaliel would have never done that. And the point I'm making here is that Paul is a very complex person. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's got a Greek influence. He's got a Roman influence. He's got a tremendous uh, Jewish upbringing. All right? He's also, um, but he also parts ways from his mentor where his mentor would have said, no, let's let these groups kind of coexist. Paul says, no, it's, it's all or nothing with Paul, right? And the, the point I'm making is all of these various forces and influences begin to converge, right, at the time of his conversion. Because once Paul meets Christ on the Damascus Road, then all bets are off, then everything begins to change. However, all those various things I just described to you that are in Paul's background, in many ways they come with him. Now he's no longer violent, but he kind of turns that violence more positively into what I would call evangelical boldness, right? So now it's not violence, but boy, Paul can talk a good game when it comes to trying to persuade and dialogue and, and, and challenge people in terms of accepting Christ and understanding who he really is. He's, so he turns that in a positive direction. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, Paul's conversion. And we know the story, but let's just remind ourselves of it. So if you have your Bible, again, open to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And let's just take a look at the, uh, the famous story here of Paul's conversion. But I want to put quotations around the word conversion. And I'm going to come back to that in a, just a couple minutes and tell you why. For now, let's read Acts chapter 9. Here we go. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder, there's again that violent streak in him, right? Against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, that if he found any belonging to the way, which was one of the main descriptors of Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Saul arose from the ground. They led him back by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now there was a disciple at Damascus whose name was Ananias. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias laid hands on him, and immediately something like scales fell from his, his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and took food 
and was strengthened. Okay, so there's the basic story, right? Narrative of um, Paul's conversion. But what I want to explore with you just for a couple minutes is what happened on that day? Every year I'm very blessed. I get to go to uh, Jerusalem. This year I'll be leading... Um, about 40 transitional deacons about to be ordained priests on a 19-day adventure in um, uh, December and, and January. And we'll be over there for, as I said, uh, almost three weeks. And we go to Galilee, we go to Jerusalem, we do an overnight in the Holy Sepulchre Church. It's extraordinary. I've had a chance to, I've been there over half a dozen times and I'll be going again. One of my favorite places to go is to Caesarea Philippi. You know, you are Peter upon this rock. Boy, would I love to break that one open for you tonight, but we won't. But about 10 miles north of there is the northernmost point that you can go in Israel, right? And you can look out and see to the north the road to Damascus. And whenever we go there, we always read this passage. Because that's as close as we can get these days, politically, to the Damascus road, right? But it's, it's striking to go to the, to, to the Holy Land and to visit these places, and also to Turkey and visit the places there. And, but what I want to explore is, well, what did this mean for Paul? I would say three things. Number one, at the bottom of page three. First, what it meant was that Paul was called by Christ as his apostle. This dramatic encounter with Jesus set Paul apart. The crucified and risen Lord truly appeared to Paul and set him on a mission to proclaim the good news to his, uh, as his chosen apostle. Though Paul was not one of the twelve, his mission was identical to the twelve. Proclaim the kingdom of God with authority and power. Okay? So, point number one is that from the passage we learn, Paul is called as, as an apostolos, an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Number two, and this goes with it, Paul was totally transformed by Christ. He became fully devoted to Jesus and was radically changed in his mind and in his heart. Everything he longed for had met him in the person of Jesus. Everything he was straining forward to do and to accomplish, for example, by killing Stephen, which sounds horrible, right? But think, this is stop for a minute. Why was Paul doing that? Why was he doing it? Because in his mind, what he saw was a distortion of the way of God, right? Now we look and say, no, it was murdering someone. This was St. Stephen, right? But from Paul's perspective, as a Pharisee, he believed surely in his heart of hearts what he was doing was good and right. Okay? So when Paul met Christ on the road and Christ tells him, no, you're, you're persecuting me by killing someone like Stephen, and that completely changes his world, he has to rethink everything that he was doing. And indeed he does. And it changes him radically. And at the center of his apostolic message was that a truly transformed life was now possible through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what, what Paul experienced, he had a taste of, right? Caught up into the third heaven. He longed for all of his brothers to experience as well. That's why he went to the synagogue as well. It's like, oh, I finally got it, Eureka. And as he would go into these places, of course, they would accept him and everyone would be converted, right? Wrong. Often he'd get thrown out on his tail. But it didn't stop him from, from proclaiming the truth. Okay, third point. Paul was caught up in the great mystery. And that, here's what I mean by that. Paul came to see that Christ himself was the great mystery of God in the flesh. That was the missing link. That was the piece that was missing for Paul. 
Christ himself was the great reversal, as I like to call it, undoing Adam's sin through his death on the cross. And in fact, one of Paul's favorite titles for Jesus is the new man or the new Adam. So he had to go back and rethink his entire understanding of salvation history in light of meeting Jesus. He recognized that Jesus, in Jesus, God definitively revealed his faithful love for all men. Now, this is something we know. We hear all the time in wonderful homilies and in the, in the readings. But you have to understand, this is a radical and new message in the world that Paul was about to break into. Right? It was astonishing to the Jews that Paul could open his mouth and say, you know, you, you have to forgive these other people who were formerly pagans who are now Christians, right, who become baptized but were Greeks. You need to kind of make way for them in your church. In fact, the whole book of Romans is really kind of about... Um, uh, Jewish Christians and Roman Christians getting along. The Jewish Christians were in Rome first, then they were booted out, and the, the church at Rome became largely Gentile in origin. Then later the Jews returned to that church. I'm talking about Jewish Christians, right? And so what you have is a reconvergence of Jews and Christians, uh, I mean, I should say, uh, Greek Christians and Jewish Christians converging in the one church, and they weren't getting along. And the whole book of Romans is really addressing that problem. Okay, so Paul has this mind that's larger than his own people can see. On the other hand, the Gentiles didn't understand it, right? He says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians that the cross is foolishness to them. The resurrection is foolishness to them. I did a series recently on the resurrection. One of the things I explained in the series is what was the conception of resurrection in Judaism and what was the conception of resurrection to the Greeks? And um, I... I um, I commend that series to you if you have an interest in the topic of the resurrection. We won't do it here. But for Paul, everything had changed. He was caught up in this great mystery. He began to reconfigure his own understanding of salvation history. And he recognized, as I said, that in Jesus Christ, God had definitively revealed himself, his faithful love to all men. Not just Israel, and not merely the Gentiles, but to all men. For God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten Son. Salvation was now possible for Jews and for Gentiles. And I would say, if you keep that last sentence in mind, you will do very well in reading Romans, Ephesians, and all of Paul's letters combined, right? Because that's one of his larger themes, is that there needs to be a way for reconciliation to happen for the Jewish Christians and also for those who are coming in from outside of the covenant. In other words, for Gentiles who are coming in. But this is easier said than done. This was a very complex thing that he was involved in. Now, Let's talk about the next point, Paul's new perspective. What changed after his conversion? Following his dramatic conversion and meeting the risen Christ, Paul became a missionary and evangelist of volcanic intensity. But not immediately. Listen to this. This is from Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me to preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with men, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He's talking about the twelve. But I went away into Arabia. Did you know that? Have you ever read that before? Paul spent several years in Arabia. And again, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is to say Peter, and remain with him 15 days. Now here's why I bring up this little obscure passage. Who cares if Paul was in Arabia? He went all over the place. What, what difference does this make? But it matters because this is right after his conversion. 
And we tend to think that Paul is riding along, killing Christians. You know, he falls off the horse, so to speak. He's blind, and then Ananias lays hands on him. He's got his message, and boo, he's off to meet Peter, and he's preaching to the Gentiles. No. Paul spent three years in Arabia. What was he doing there? For three years, I would argue what Paul was likely doing was meditating on what had happened to him. Now that he was, and this is a very important phrase for us folks over these next three weeks, now that he was in Christ. In Christ. For Paul being in Christ meant more than just a ticket to heaven. It meant that this great mystery was unfolding and he was a part of it. But I would suggest that part of what, what uh, for the reason for the delay was that Paul was likely caught up in a, a deep sense of prayer during those years. You know, he was running so hard this way, right, in one direction his whole life, and it made sense, that you can understand and sort of cut him some slack for not picking up the next day and going this way, right? But more than that, I would suggest it tells us something, and I'm inferring here, but I think it tells us something about Paul's interior life, right? Paul's actions were, were the manifestation of his prayer. So when he killed Stephen and did all those other horrible things to the Christians, he did so out of a sense of, of righteousness, as he understood it at the time, right? But now that he met Christ, and Christ had leveled him, he now needed to go back and rethink everything that he thought was true and, and what he was doing and, and bring it into obedience to Christ. And I think that gives us some mindset for when he writes these letters... You know, we tend to think he just kind of sat down and, you know, there's a lot of thought. There's a lot of passion that goes into them. He knows exactly what he wants to say and exactly um, what needs to be said and he doesn't refrain. But let's not think that he just kind of sat down and spontaneously wrote the Ephesians or anything else. It was only after time of great reflection. Um, now, um, notwithstanding his dramatic conversion to Christ, the roots of Paul's Jewish theology remained intact. That's another very big point here. In other words, we tend to say, well, Paul was a Jew and then he became a Christian. But I think that's kind of looking a little bit too, not deeply enough, okay? I, I think there's more to it than that. His Jewish worldview of Yahweh becoming king over all of Israel and all of creation were in no way diminished, but rather they found their true home in Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that point. When Paul was... Uh, Saul the Pharisee and persecuting Christians, he believed that what he was doing was following and bringing justice to the world for God. Penalizing these various Gentiles, right? And also those who were heretics within his own people. He believed that that was basically going to bring about or advance the kingdom of God. Now he saw that he was entirely wrong. That it wasn't through murder and through strife, but it was through proclamation and truth and love and invitation into this new mystery called Jesus Christ that God was going to fulfill his plan of saving the whole of humanity. But the important point is to see that I don't think that Paul's Judaism was in any way diminished. Now, I don't want to get into the issues of, for example, like, well, of course he wasn't telling Gentiles to be circumcised. That's, that's, that's not my point. Obviously, there was going to have to be new allowances for these people who were not... Uh, born as Jews, right? Circumcision was going to have to go by the wayside. Ceremonial laws were going to have to go by the wayside. So yes, some of these things are going to be set aside, but let's remember that Paul at his heart is still a Jew. You might say in some ways he becomes a completed Jew in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and on this uh, point, I'd bring into the conversation a little book 
um, by Kirster Stendhal called Paul Among Jews and Gentiles. Very hard to find now. It's, you can maybe find it on Amazon. It's a tiny little book. One of the most revolutionary books I've read in, uh, in, in, my, um, in the last 10 years on, on Paul's theology. Because I myself was very guilty of seeing Paul's uh, conversion as well. Conversion. And yes, of course it's conversion in the sense that it was this radical transformation, but it was not away from his Jewish roots. In fact, it was to say deeper into his Jewish roots and not away from them. Um, the term call or calling, according to Stendhal, fit better than conversion, which suggests a pulling away from his Jewish roots. Such is not the case. Stendhal argues that conversion is, is it's not so much wrong, it's inadequate. It implies Paul changed his religion. The Jew became a Christian, as he writes. But as he explained, the I in Paul's letters, whenever he says I, is not the Christian, but the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, right? And I ask you to keep that in mind, because we tend to quickly grab him away from Judaism and claim him as our own, right? When in fact, Paul in his heart remains a Jew. His understanding of God is first and foremost through the scriptures, by which I mean the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, right? All right. In conclusion on the Apostle Paul, Let's try to summarize. First, Saul the Pharisee, like the Old Testament prophets, expected that at the end of the time, at the end of the world, God would vindicate Israel. That he would right the world's wrongs, and then and only then, he would usher in the new age of the kingdom of God. That was his basic worldview. But now, as Saul the Christian, he came to see that somehow, God had already done this in Jesus Christ. Not at the end of time, but in the middle of history, in the present moment, and in all present moments for future ages to come until Christ comes again. In other words, Paul got, he got, that the new age of God that had been hoped for at the end of time had definitively begun in Jesus Christ and was continuing through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So again, it's not so much that Paul had to relinquish his Judaism, but he had to rethink it and reconfigure it in light of Christ. This really was the good news for all humanity, and he became preoccupied with his, its urgent proclamation to Jew and Gentile alike. Now, there's probably much more than can be said about St. Paul himself, but let's kind of leave it there for the moment and talk just a little bit before we... Um, run out of time here on the letter to the Ephesians itself. Okay, so with Paul, Paul's background in mind, let's turn to some contextual remarks on our book, the book of Ephesians. What about the author and the date of this book? Well, very simply, I'm here to argue St. Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Does not sound very controversial. However, uh, you should at least know, and I won't, I won't delay here, that in the um, modern scholarship, there's been a lot of debate and a lot of ink spilt about uh, certain of Paul's letters, and Ephesians is one of them, that is considered to be a deuteropauline, meaning it doesn't come from Paul's own hand, maybe from someone in Paul's community, and, and all the rest. Now, in some of the footnotes, which I'm certainly not going to read here, but for the interested, I give you a little bit more information on, on why I think Paul is indeed the author of Ephesians. I want to also recommend a great book by my friend Peter Williamson um, called uh, The Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. Anybody know this series? 
a few of you. It's a very good series. Peter Williamson teaches at Sacred Heart Seminary in uh, Detroit. He's a friend of mine. And he wrote, uh, I think, just a very nice commentary on Ephesians. It'd be a nice kind of uh, compliment to this uh, series if you're interested in picking it up and get it on Amazon. And it, uh, Williamson says... Uh, he's absolutely convinced that Paul wrote this letter. But he adds in one of the notes, but even if he's not, the book is inspired. If it, if it was not written by Paul, then it's still inspired scripture, um, even if it was from someone within his, his community. But, but, if, but that's not what Williamson's arguing. Williamson's arguing that without question, Paul wrote this letter. Now, when did he write it? Well, Paul actually lived in Ephesus uh, from 54 to 57. Ephesians was written in approximately 60 to 62. So he had been in that very community that he was now writing to and then left. So we've got a three to four to maybe five year period between his actual time there and the letter itself. As I mentioned earlier, Ephesians was written during Paul's imprisonment, probably in Rome. Again, you can read the footnotes because there's some debate, but more than likely where he was imprisoned was in Rome, but some say it was in Caesarea Maritima or another place. Um, but clearly he was imprisoned. Um, point number three, Paul's ministry at Ephesus was very extensive. It's described in some detail in the book of Acts. Um, his time in Ephesus was remarkably fruitful. And it kept them there, there longer, three years, than he had been in any place. Paul, like, you know, wherever I lay my hat is my home, you know what I mean? Except Ephesus. Ephesus was one of these places that he hung around for quite a long time. And as I say, was was very successful. Um, at the end of the book of Acts, we read, uh, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's in Acts 19, but it's in reference to his time in Ephesus. So the point I'm simply making is that while Paul is not there, obviously when he's writing the letter, his time there was very, very fruitful. So when he sends this letter, they would have well known uh, even if they hadn't met him themselves, who he was and his authority over them. What about the audience? Well, the audience was uh, obviously the Christian church at Ephesus, many of whom were Gentile Christians. And there's some reference in the footnotes to um, the letter where he directly mentions the Gentiles on a number of occasions in Ephesians 3.1 and so on. Based upon, um, I'm on page six here, based upon the content of the book of Ephesians, Many of the people that he's writing to were new to the faith and in need of being strengthened in two ways. First, in their individual or personal identity as Christians. And secondly, in their corporeal or corporate identity as members of the body of Christ. Now, just as a kind of a, a spiritual or, or application note for us, as you read this letter, I want you to be mindful of the I and the we. Right? In other words, there's going to be a lot of insights of spiritual growth that you can take and apply of what Paul says in your own life. But I would also add that there needs to be a balance there because what we don't want to do with this letter or any of Paul's letters is only turn it into kind of a, a me and Jesus sort of a dynamic, right? If you follow me, right? Now that's important to have this interior um, prayer life and, and intimacy with our Lord. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm saying, though, that... Um, in our day, I think far too many Christians kind of minimize and consolidate Christianity to this interior private dimension that's between Jesus and they themselves. And that's not just how Paul thinks. 
It's important to, to, to say that Paul does want to undergird them in their identity as individuals in Christ. No question, no question. But he also wants to fortify their relationship as the body of Christ. So be watching for the both and as you go through this letter with me, okay? Unlike his other epistles, top of page 6, Ephesians does not address a specific problem. It presents an apostolic catechesis on what God has done for them through Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're looking for what the great problem is in this church, it's not going to, um, to bite you in the you-know-where. Because there's not simply one particular quagmire that the church has fallen into, apparently. Because Paul doesn't address one. Now, in the book of Corinthians, I would say it's a problem with liturgy. And I won't tell you why now, but, um, but the point is simply that we don't see that the, the church has one major glaring problem going. Now, that doesn't mean that everything was hunky-dory either, right? Um, it's, it's obvious that this is, in many ways, a church with many newer believers or those who need to be instructed in the faith. And so, in many ways, the book of Ephesians is kind of like uh, a mini-catechism. It's like the New Testament's catechism. He's going to explain to them their identity in Christ, their identity as the body of Christ, and how they're to uh, change their lives accordingly. One last point I would make here is that St. John addressed this church in his book of Revelation. And one thing he says about the, the Ephesians is the same thing there, too. In, Ephes in uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, John basically commends them and says, in many ways, keep on keeping on, you're doing great. But he also does warn them, he says, however, some of you have forgotten your first love, which is to say that for, um, that at least at the time that John wrote to them, it seems that many had become in some ways less uh, passionate, less convinced of their faith, and began to kind of go astray. But likely Revelation was written at the end of the first century. This is in the middle, so it's hard to put the two pieces together, but it's clear that overall the Ephesian church seemed to be fairly strong, and yet they still need lots of growth. Now let's talk just a little bit about the setting here before we uh, wind down. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Rome is made up of a series of provinces, and Ephesus was uh, the, sort of the headquarters or capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a key port city, and as such, it had enormous diversity. Extremely affluent on one hand, but wage laborers and the very, very poor on the other hand. The population at the time of this letter was approximately 200,000 people. Many of its inhabitants were not native Ephesians, but moved through the city for travel and for work and so on. It was also a very opulent city, and, and likely a very, very pagan city, right? Um, it had all sorts of amenities and, and enticements. It had the beautiful Temple of Artemis, uh, one of the seven wonders of the natural world, of the ancient world. Uh, there was a lot of pagan cults and sects that were uh, located in, in Ephesus. It was also an enormously beautiful city. It had something... Um, called the Marble Way, when I give you a little photo of it, but it really doesn't do it justice. Um, the main street that was paved of marble was 35 feet wide and half a mile in length. And you can still walk it today, and that's what the photo is. One of the major streets connected the harbor and a major theater, uh, which seated 24,000. There was an agora or marketplace and many other uh, features you can read about more in Peter Williamson's commentary. Finally, there were several Johannine connections. Um, according to sound tradition, St. John and the Blessed Virgin Mary later resided here. And it's likely that Mary ended the course of her earthly life uh, in Ephesus. Also, as I mentioned, one of the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. All right. Just a bit about structure. 
Um, it's often helpful when you're studying any book of the Bible to know something about the structure of the book. And every major commentary that you'll pick up will have uh, something on structure. What I've done is given you on page 29 my own take on it. And it's fairly brief. If you turn to page 29 just for a moment with me and keep a hand at page 6, you can see that basically there's three parts to the letter. There's an introduction, right, which basically consists of chapter 1. And then we have the body of the epistle, which is basically chapter 2 to nearly the end of 6. And then the few verses at the very end of 6, which is the conclusion. Okay? And um, as we're going through in various uh, weeks here, you may want to return to that to see where we're at in terms of our, our place in the letter. Just a little bit about the theology of the book. Um, I love this quote uh, from Peter Williamson uh, on the top of page 7. We'll wrap up in just a couple minutes here. The epistle to the Ephesians is the most eloquent of the letters attributed to St. Paul and contains some of his richest theological writing in the Christian tradition. And I couldn't argue with a single syllable of that. Well said. Uh, Williamson suggests five crucial themes which undergird the letter. Let me just mention these. Number one, Christ. Paul uses the term Christos 45 times. Now, how long is the letter? It's only six chapters, right? 45 times. Through Christ, God saved believers from spiritual death caused by sin, from the power of Satan, and from the flesh. That's another quote from Peter Williamson. Second theme, the union of believers with Christ. Ephesians emphasizes that through baptism, believers are profoundly united to Christ, yet perfecting this union with Christ remains the goals of every Christian. So you're in Christ, you're united to Him, but it's like already but not yet, right? And a big theme of the letter is taking us from here to there. Okay. Number three, Christian identity. In Christ, the believer has put off the old self and has put on his phrase, the new man. Believers are brought into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you were also built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's right from Ephesians chapter 2. So a whole new identity. Number four, holy and righteous conduct. The new life of every believer made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus demands that Christians become what you are, what you already are. That is to say, beloved children of God. And therefore, they are to renounce their former Gentile way of life. Instead, they are to speak the truth and live in love in a way that imitates God and Christ's gift of faith. In other words, Paul wants to be very doctrinal and talk about their identity, right? And all this kind of interior stuff and corporate stuff as the body. But he also wants to talk about action and practical stuff, too. So the second half of the letter is really a lot of moral instruction, where the first half of the letter is primarily a lot of doctrinal stuff. And number five, the last one here, the church. Ephesians, I would argue more than any of his letters, develops the theology of the universal church. The community that composes the church is a holy temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. And so I would, I would say that the way Williamson breaks it up here, these five themes are the substantial ones. Doesn't mean that there's not other ones. In fact, he himself says there's several dozen uh, topics in the letter. So there's more than this, but these are the major themes that we have going on here. Why don't we just try to crack the cover of chapter 1, alright? So if you turn to page 8 with me, let's at least just get started in the opening verses here. And let's read from Ephesians chapter 1. Now I use the RSV uh, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Tonight I happen to have the ESV version with me, so if it sounds slightly different, please pardon that. 
Um, let's read chapter uh, 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in customary fashion, St. Paul greets the believers at Ephesus as he does in all of his letters. If you look at footnote 47, I haven't mentioned many of them here, you'll see that if you go to Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, you're going to find a very customary salutation that Paul makes. But it's very important to see that even in these opening uh, verses, in his salutation, Paul is already deeply into theology. Right? Nothing with Paul is an extra. His greeting, his closing comments, every, and everything in between is aligned towards their transformation. So here, he greets the believers at Ephesus. Right? He's already reminding them of their identity. Already in his salutation, he calls them holy ones, or saints, made so through the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of what Paul does is not so much converting the unconverted, but you might say converting the already converted who need to be go deeper into their faith. And in some ways I would say that resonates with my own experience, right? I can look at my own life and see in many ways I've just got so much further to go. And when I read his letters, I read them as, uh, you might say, as like an older brother that is Paul writing to a younger kid in the faith to kind of say, Let's kind of help you grow up here, right? It's, you've had your, kind of, your baby food, and now let's kind of go on to the, the stuff you can chew and the kernels of corn, and now a full meal, right? And that's the case with all of his letters. So if you're wondering, hey, does this apply to me? You bet it does. Everything he says, there is something in it for us to take away. And I hope even in these opening verses, you'll, you'll take something home with you here. So Paul reminds them of who they already are. They're the holy ones. They're the saints of God, right? It's important to remember that in Catholic Christianity, we've got two kinds of saints, right? We've got saints with a capital S, right? Like uh, St. Pope John XXIII and St. Pope uh, John Paul the Great, and those that are canonized. But for St. Paul, everyone who is in Christ is a saint with a small s, right? Which is to say that we are on our way to heaven as well, right? Our journey might be a little bit longer than theirs, perhaps, but we're still called to that union with God. And it's very important to see that at the beginning, he wants to kind of paint this picture for them and say, this is who you now are. And that is not perfunctory. It's very important for Paul and for us to see that when he holds that mirror up to us, he is basically saying, in Christ, this is all the riches that you now have. Now, why that's important, I think, today is for many of us, we get distracted. We get busy. We, maybe sometimes we go away from our faith for a period of, of hours or days or weeks or sometimes we've got up and down years and you say, oh, well, this period in my life or that period of my life, I was not as close and thank God I'm more now. But what Paul's doing constantly is holding up that mirror to us. Except the mirror is not our own mere reflection. It's our identity in Christ as Christ sees us, right? So it's not that Paul's saying, hey, you know, it's not like you don't have any cleanup work to do. But he's basically saying, here's the goal. This is who you are going to be. So why not act like you're on that road already, right? And start and taking steps to align your current position in life with that identity which, you, which Christ bought for you on the cross. Thomas Aquinas wrote a beautiful commentary on this uh, uh, um, book. And next week I'll, I'll talk about some other commentaries and, and aids for reading this book. But here's what he says for now. They were not initiated into the faith by the Apostle Paul, but he did strengthen them in it. 
His intention is to strengthen them in good habits and spur them on to great perfection. Now that's Aquinas' comment right at verse 1. He basically thinks he's taking this idea of the holy ones and seizing that and saying, yes, that's why he calls them that. Because he says it's not like you've got it all figured out now, but this is who your identity already is in Jesus Christ. Paul is an apostle, apostolos, a messenger of Jesus Christ. And just as the Father sent Jesus Christ into the world to do the will of the Father, so are his chosen apostles sent to do the will of the Father and the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. As I said earlier, it's a highly Trinitarian letter. My final remark here, in proclaiming grace to you, grace to you, we see one of the other great themes of this letter. The theme of grace, and I can't wait in future weeks to get into the brass tacks of grace because it's one of the most extraordinary concepts in our Christian faith. Thank you very much. And I haven't gone back to check, but did you say he was there for like three years? But then you said, then later it says he was not the one who could, or somebody. That's said, right. Yeah, he was not the one who converted them. Well, well, there's, there's. How do they know that? Because uh, part of the, basically, the question is, I was saying he was there earlier for three years, and then I also made the point that um, one of the scholars I referenced said, but he himself did not convert them. So it's what, what we're getting at is likely that these are very fresh converts, meaning some of them within the last months. So it's likely that those, um, uh, the, the priests and others who were in charge of the, the church or house churches there were the ones who were immediately responsible for their reception into the church. So some of these are really young Christians in terms of, of being fresh on the scene. Thank you, Professor. You'd mentioned Saul's conversion story, which is in the third person in Acts chapter 9. But what about Saul's two retellings of his own conversion story in Acts chapter 22 and then in Acts chapter 26? Okay. And the question? Uh, my or question is just simply, uh, it's not a, a modernist thing about discrepancy, but just simply, why is it that... Luke, I guess. Um, Why does he record those? Yeah. Well, the initial one in Acts chapter 9 is, is basically the, cl the classic conversion story because prior, he's Saul, the, the one who's murdering, uh, you know, killing Christians and rounding them up. In Acts chapter 22 and chapter 26, he's on trial. So they're part of the dialogue with the Roman, with the Roman leaders. And so basically, Paul is appealing to Rome because he was a Roman Christian and in the process is communicating the gospel to them. Yeah, good question. So sometimes you will see repetition, right? We, we see the same thing in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, and boy, that's just a, that's, I just opened up Pandora's box there. I didn't mean to. But um, the, the way I would say when you, when you come across these repetitions is to try to be aware first and foremost of, ask questions like, what does seem to be the intention of this passage? If you read Acts 22 and 26, you can see they're framed in the, in the uh, context of dialogues, right? Same thing in the Synoptic Gospels. When you see overlap, it's, it's good to kind of back up and maybe read the chapter and ask the question, what's the larger purpose of this chapter? It may work itself out that the answer is right before you. If that doesn't work, consult a good commentary. We're getting a question from online, sure. and I, it's from Henry. He lives in Alexandria. But his question is basically about the authorship um, of, of Ephesians. Is it disputed at all? Does it matter whether or not Paul actually wrote this epistle? It, it, it is. There's basically two schools of thought. And you should, you should know that the predominant view today by most scholars 
is that this is one of the so-called disputed letters in the footnotes, and I won't bother you with reading all this here, but you can find it in the footnotes on the outline. I mentioned all the other ones that are also disputed as well. Peter Williamson, I think, had a very good um, sort of rebuttal to this. I think he says, uh, the way he puts it, is that some of the reason that the letters are disputed are on stylistic grounds. In other words, it's not so much that there's not um, enough credible evidence that Paul wrote it, right? In the early church, for example, all these letters were tested to Paul. And I want to quickly add, if you've heard that the Gospels were anonymous, let's just clear this up right now. From my point of view, I don't see any of the Gospels as anonymous. Um, if you look at the early church, as early as Irenaeus, we have strong, fervent declarations that Matthew wrote Matthew, Luke wrote Luke, Mark wrote Mark, and John wrote John. It's really only in the modern times, in the last 150 years, that we've got into these disputations about the Gospels and also Paul's letters. And so I would say there's really been nothing less than an attack on the New Testament in terms of its authorship. And the authorship's important because if we're talking about eyewitness testimony of someone like uh, St. Paul or St. Luke or St. John, whoever it is, then that really changes matters, right? So for those who are looking at the Gospels or Paul's letters from a more skeptical lens, they're much more apt to conclude that they were not written by the original authors. But the evidence, when you add it all up, points towards uh, apostolic authorship of both the Gospels and Paul's letters. Again, primarily on stylistic grounds, which means that, well, this doesn't sound like Paul and this does. And that gets, you know, that sort of gets into, uh, I think, a speculative reconstruction based upon how someone is writing. Like, for example, if I were writing a card to my wife and I were, um, I don't know, writing a formal letter to my boss about something that happened at work, they're going to have two very different styles, understandably. And that may sound like it's oversimplifying it, but in some ways we need to kind of come back to some common sense and some simplicity on this. Because a lot of the conclusions we've heard over the last 40, 50 years have been very, I think, unhelpful in this regard. I think we can have great confidence that Paul wrote this letter, no question about it. But as Peter Williamson said, said, if he did not, which he doesn't believe is the case, then certainly it came from the so-called Pauline community, someone like Apollos or someone else who was in his stead who knew him personally. But he's not persuaded that that's the case. I'm not persuaded that that's the case. I think we can have a great deal of confidence that Paul indeed wrote this letter. I've read where some scholars yep. believe that Paul wrote Ephesians, not so much for the people of Ephesus, but for Asia Minor, perhaps, mm -hmm. in general. What is your position on this? Uh, so sort of like a circulating letter? Yes. I'm more persuaded myself that the Gospels have that characteristic. That is to say, it's been very much in vogue in the last 40, 50 years to say that Mark wrote for the Markan community and Matthew wrote for the Methane community. I'm not so much of that mind. I see the, the evangelists as really people who are writing for all Christians who believe, whether, in other words, for the broadest audience possible. That doesn't mean that they didn't have a certain particular region in mind, but I see the Gospels as kind of going out in sort of universal, all four points of the globe type of a thing. In contrast, I think Paul's letters really, for the most part, are written to particular people. You see at the end of the letters where he says, at Romans, it's a whole chapter, greet so-and-so and so-and-so, and he's giving updates back and forth between uh, the person who's sending the letter and people that are in his company. So they have a very kind of personal dimension to them. So I'm not ruling it out that it wasn't beyond Ephesus, and certainly this letter, like all of Paul's letters, traveled and circulated, right? But I would say initially it probably is, at least in my view, at least first and foremost to the... Um, the, the Christian colony at, at, uh, at Ephesus. God Thank bless. you Thank so you. much, Dr. Smith. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. 
If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.